God, we are overwhelmed by the goodness of your grace and your love. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word and that you would allow us to experience the goodness of your grace in our lives in a fresh and a new way today as we come to your holy table. This holy feast, the Lord's Supper, would you meet us in this place and remind us of who we are in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, quickly, I, I, I just have to share a little backstory. A lot of you are not aware of all the, the moving parts that go on on Sunday morning, and oftentimes Greg and I will hear someone come up to us and say, man, you guys wove that together so well, and we're like, hey, we didn't plan it that way. That was just the Holy Spirit, right? So, so just to let you in on a little secret of how the Holy Spirit is working this morning, uh, we checked in in the, in the prayer room before the service, and Greg says, I'm going to make sure that we tell everybody that there's a student contemplative service going on in the upper room, right? And then he forgot, and then he goes, oh, I forgot. And I was like, oh, no problem, I got it, it's in my notes. And then I forgot to mention it during my announcements. Well, you know what the opening line of my sermon for this morning is? Does anybody ever have trouble remembering things? <laughs> I couldn't have planned it better myself, right? <laughs> the more we fill our time and to-do lists with the extra stuff of life that we have to pay attention to, the more things begin to fall through the cracks, right? I mean, do you ever have trouble remembering things? I know sometimes they say the older we get, the harder it is to remember, and I'm sure that's true, but, but man, we all struggle with remembering things, right? Uh, the more we experience difficulty and painful experiences and trauma in our lives, the more difficult it gets to remember other things in our lives, right? Things begin to fall off the map. The more conflict we have in relationships with the people around us and even in our own church with the people that we worship with, it's hard to remember and it becomes easier to forget how we're supposed to treat one another and show kindness and respect to each other, right? Does anybody else struggle with remembering things sometimes? See, the same thing happens, I think, in our, our walk with Jesus. We can get so caught up with the worries of our lives, with our anxieties about what other people are thinking about us or, or what successes we're going to be able to achieve. Even in our religious activity, coming to church and doing ministry, we can forget the core essential things that God has called us to in his son, Jesus. Now, you'd think that we wouldn't need to be reminded about God's grace that he's shown us in his son, Jesus, right? But we do. And we need to be reminded how that grace is to be lived out in our relationships with those around us in the same way that Jesus gave his life in a sacrificial way so that we are truly following Jesus in his example. You think Jesus knew that we had a tendency to easily forget things? I mean, I, I think that's why at the Last Supper, when he sat down with his disciples, he instituted this, this communion meal, and he said, what? Do this in remembering me. See, in communion, we're invited to, to reignite our passion for Jesus and, and for one another as the body of Christ, the church, as we remember Jesus' passion for us. As followers of Christ, our faith is strengthened and built up through eating and drinking and remembering. Now, this morning, I wanted to take some time to do a little bit more of a, of a teaching sermon on communion, because whether you've been in the church for a lifetime or you're newer to church, oftentimes we, we either don't realize the, the rich 
imagery and symbolism that's connected to the communion elements, or, or we easily forget how important that meaning is to us. And so I want to take some time to, to track the, the, the thread in the scriptures that help us to understand why this simple meal of bread and wine is one of the core essential things that should buoy our faith and give us hope in life. The intention is to prepare us for the feast of communion that we're participating in today, but, but so that we can also be putting into practice everything we've been learning in our recent sermon series on how we continue to allow our faith to challenge our thinking on what we think about. See, in the early church, the Apostle Paul found it necessary to remind the church of Corinth of this important uh, truth as well. And, and the words of institution that we repeat almost every time that we take communion come from a larger section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to read a larger section of uh, Scripture for us today so that we get a sense of the context in which these words of institution were given by the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, they had lots of problems <laughs> They were a tough church. And in, in chapter um, 11, beginning in verse 17, the apostle Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. <laughs> oh, man. For your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's a little tongue-in-cheek dig there, if you didn't get that. We'll talk about that in a minute. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. This is the church you want to attend, I guess, huh? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Paul goes on, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should get, eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Uh, that was kind of a harsh passage, right? Anyone who eats unworthily is eating judgment on themselves. Wow, what is he talking about there? I mean, if I come to communion and, and, and I've had a rough week and I've committed some sin, does that mean I'm coming in an unworthy manner? Is that what Paul's talking about here? 
I'm going to suggest for us that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's talking about is as we examine our own hearts and our own minds as we come to communion, and he's calling us to discern the body of Christ, he's calling us to look at the sacrifice of Jesus and in that see our calling for how we are to live with one another. Let me tell you more what I mean about that. First of all, Paul says it's important that we remember what Jesus did for us. Number one is that we remember what Jesus did for us. See, the problem in Corinth is that these divisions had arisen in the faith community, and this widening gulf exists between the rich and the poor in this local house church in Corinth. See, the minority of wealthier Christians, those who likely owned the larger homes where the churches would gather, would probably have more leisure time and could come earlier to church and bring more fine foods and perhaps lots of wine that they could start enjoying while they're waiting for the rest of the church to show up, right? And the the majority of believers who are the less wealthy or maybe even the poor believers often would probably have to work late into the evening on Saturday and Sunday evenings when they would have church because in the Roman culture at that time, there was no legal day off from work. So especially if you were on the lower class, you probably had to work seven days a week. So they, these richer Christians could arrive earlier and with larger quantities of food, and they, they would likely have filled the small dining room that was the common layout of the Corinthian homes at that time, so, so that by the time the other Christians got there, they had to be seated out in the atrium or the courtyard, and they couldn't be in the inner circle of those who were sitting at the table. Those who could not afford to bring a meal or a very good one were not given the opportunity to share in the same food that the other uh, believers were participating in, and apparently uh, some were just left out altogether. Those who arrived early went ahead and began to eat, and so much so that by the time other people got there, some of them were already drunk. I mean, wow. Paul is saying that they've gotten so far off track with the intention of what communion is supposed to be about that these glaring divisions are, are, are actually serving to show who, who is still faithful to the gospel. Because he's saying it's so glaringly obvious that you are not following the way of Jesus that, that it should show you where you've missed the mark. Paul is saying that the blatant disregard of one set of Christians for another set of Christians isn't actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. They've missed the whole point of what the Lord's Supper is all about. They're actually eating their, their own supper. You guys want to come to the, the Kurt Supper today? <laughs> or the Paul Supper? <laughs> the, the phrase, it literally translates, each one goes ahead with his own supper. See, the, the account, if we think back to the, the story of Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, is in sharp contrast to what's going on here in the Corinthian church, right? It, it, it's, it's not even the same thing. And that's why, with these words of institution, Paul is referring them back to the story of Jesus and his disciples. The story that was handed down to him from the disciples who were actually there. And in these words of institution, we can begin to see clues to the broader context of the Last Supper with Jesus and the deeper meaning that accompanies it. Now, uh, to do that, I want to take a, a little bit of time and talk about the Passover meal. I mean, that was the Last Supper, right? Jesus was having the Passover meal with his disciples. And and, and we know that in the Passover meal, the unleavened bread that they would eat was a reminder of uh, their hasty departure from Egypt, the people of Israel, when God rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh. 
And, and in that meal, the head of the household w- would open the meal with prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then he would distribute pieces of the bread from a common loaf to everyone around the table, symbolizing the unity that they all shared together. The other thing that's interesting, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but they call it the cup, right? Why, why, didn't, why wouldn't they call it the wine? They call it the cup, you know? They have the bread and they have the... No, they have the bread and the cup. Well, if you think back to the Old Testament part of Scripture, we know that the the cup of God's wrath was the cup that we didn't want to drink, right? And and yet this cup had a spiritual symbolism that, that when we are out of relationship with God, out of right relationship with God, we are at risk of drinking the cup of God's judgment. It's, it's God's judgment against the sin of a fallen world that this idea of a cup refers to from the Old Testament. God poured out his judgment on the Egyptians, but he spared the Israelites who obeyed him by having the people place what? Blood of a lamb on the doorpost, right? So, so this cup that's taken after supper in the Passover meal is the third cup of four in the Passover meal and is actually the cup of redemption. See, Jesus calls this cup, this third cup, which is the cup that is supposed to remind us of the blood of the lamb that was spilled for the redemption of the people in Israel and Egypt, is this third cup that Jesus calls the cup of the new covenant in my blood, right? In, in his blood. It's the blood of the lamb that Jesus is identifying and he's inviting his disciples to participate in drinking from. Now, stay with me here. There's a lot of information, but we're going to connect the threads and see how they all tie together, right? See, as we make these connections by calling this cup the new covenant in his blood, he's also making a direct reference to a promise in the prophet of Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'm going to read verses 31 and the end of 34, where it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, the the cup of the new covenant is the, the cup of redemption where God promises to forgive the sins of his people and wipe away all their iniquities. Now, God has declared that this new covenant wouldn't be just for the people of Israel as well, but for all people, that this was God's plan for creation, that that one day he would make a way for all of God's, all the people that God created to experience the forgiveness and the restoration in him because the original covenant had been broken and was not able to achieve that outcome. So to violate a covenant agreement with God would surely incur incur his wrath and his judgment. And it's not the cup that we would want to drink. But instead, God promised that a new covenant of grace and salvation would come. So this cup of redemption stood for more than just the Hebrews' escape from Egypt, but for God's larger plan for you and for me and for all of us. Jesus was speaking of a cup purely in a symbolic manner, right? That cup that he was to share was his death on the cross, right? His, his cup that he had to drink was he, taking God's wrath and God's judgment for humanity on himself. I mean, you remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? After the Last Supper's over and he's out in the garden, he's praying in Matthew 26, 39. What does he say? He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want but what you want. 
See, in Jesus' humanity, he could wish that this cup of judgment, the one that everyone except him probably deserves to drink for breaking the covenant of God, would pass over him. And yet, as the obedient son of God, Jesus knew that this cup of blessing that could only be poured out for you and for me if he were willing to drink the cup of God's judgment for us. No wonder the Apostle Paul also calls it the cup of blessing which we bless What greater blessing can we receive than that which the Messiah has purchased through his death and his burial and his resurrection? See, as we remember the story of the Passover in the Last Supper of Jesus, we celebrate the triumph of the Lamb of God that was given for the sins of the whole world. Amen? See, each time the Corinthians ate this bread and drank this cup of the Lord's Supper, they should have recalled this sacrifice of Jesus to atone for the sins of of everyone and acted with each other in a much more uh, loving and caring way so that they recognize that, that we all now, as followers of Jesus, the one who gave his life so that we could have life, are called to be broken bread and poured out wine for the needs of those around us. If we don't live the way Jesus lived, if we don't follow his example, then we're not really following Jesus as his disciples. And we need a reminder, Jesus says, of what we're supposed to be about. And so every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do this, Jesus says, remembering me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember my call on your life that you are to go and live the way I live. You are to give your life as a sacrifice for others because your life has been redeemed. You can now share that as a gift to other people as well. If the Corinthians' behavior is so horrendous toward one another, Paul says, how can they qualify to participate in such a meal themselves? That's what Paul means by saying eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It's not being aware of our attitude and our relationships with the rest of the body of Christ. So the the exhortation then is the second thing that Paul wants us to do when we come to this table is he wants us to examine ourselves. He wants us to, 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 in the same way we've been talking about, think about what we're thinking about, right? Think about our own attitudes and our own experiences and our relationships with the people around us especially toward uh, people who are less fortunate than us. Paul is pointing out here that our hearts and our attitudes towards the less fortunate or toward the, the newcomer or the guest in our midst, to those who are different from us, all need to be examined as we come to this table because God's invitation is, is to break down the dividing walls of hostility so that we can be all one people together. It's kind of similar if you think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, he said, Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. See, what what value is there in, in saying we're worshiping God and we're following Jesus if we're not willing to be obedient to Christ and do the things that he's called us to do? And the things that he's called us to do are not hard or, well, they're hard, but they're not onerous, right? He's called us to love each other. And sometimes loving each other can be hard because it means we have to sacrifice our own preferences, our own willfulness, and we have to offer grace and forgiveness to people who maybe have wronged us or harmed us. And I wonder as we come to communion today, as a faith community, how many of us come to this holy table with unresolved issues with people in our lives? 
Is there somebody in your life that you've wronged and you know you owe them an apology? You know that there's more you could do to try and, and repair relationship, but you've been resisting that and you, you're holding off against that. And, and maybe this morning, the Holy Spirit would be inviting you to open yourself to the possibility that with his help and with Christ's hope, you may be able to begin to work towards reconciliation. Or, or maybe on the, the other side, maybe it's somebody who's harmed you. And obviously, you can't control whether they're willing to reconcile or not, but, but you need the work of being able to forgive them, even if they're not able to, to, to be reconciled with you. Sometimes that's even harder, right, is to forgive somebody even when they're not repentant. And yet, we know from the gospel that when we allow the forgiveness of God to work in our hearts, even for those who don't want it or ask for it, we are set free from being stuck in that stronghold of the lies of the enemy that want to tell us that, that we need to stew on this unforgiveness that eats us up alive. So maybe we can be set free this morning by offering forgiveness for someone who's wronged us in our life. See, that leads us to really the third point that Paul says is not only do we examine ourselves, but we need to discern the body. And when he talks about discerning the body, he means being aware that we are the body of Christ. As we discern the, the body and blood of Jesus in the elements, we're also called to discern that we are the body of Christ and that we're called to live in relationship with one another and to, to welcome one another. Paul says, wait for one another in, in the NIV, but it's more translate, directly translated, welcome one another. Welcome one another. It's this idea of hospitality and welcome. And I love what Henry Nouwen says about hospitality. Hospitality is creating space in your life for someone else. Creating space in your life for someone else. Are we really willing to welcome one another into our lives? I mean, we can sit next together and worship, and we can attend classes together, and we can go through life, but are we really willing to welcome one another into our lives so that we're knowing one another at a deeper level and we're able to meet the needs that we have. See, we need to be able to discern the body and recognize that as the body of Christ, Christians are called and empowered to be broken bread and poured out wine for one another. Now, the main point of the Holy Communion Feast is not to have our own personal needs met, but to share the grace of Christ with those he's called us to live with, which is what we all need the most. And that leads us to the final point that I think Paul has for us in this passage on 1 Corinthians, is that when we take this communion feast, when we come and we say yes to the meaning of communion that we've been talking about, what we are doing in the act of worship, in coming and taking communion, is we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? That's a mouthful, right? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I'd like to suggest for us is that you come and you take communion this morning. You, you are proclaiming that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and that his grace and his mercy through Christ is the only thing that can lead you to life and to peace. Proclaiming the Lord's death for us is claiming his grace as our only resource in life. In humility, we are taking up our cross and we're following Jesus. See, in taking communion, we proclaim the benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us, which then also turns our eyes towards the future when we anticipate that Jesus is coming again because not only did he die and was buried, but he is risen and he is alive. And we know that he has not abandoned us, but he sent us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on the life to come and that one day he will return and he will take us to be with him because he's preparing a place for us to go so that we can be together again. Amen? Is that good? news? 
And when we take communion, we are reminded that this Jesus who died is alive and he's coming again. And because of that, we know that we can give the life that we have today to serve others in his name. And I think ultimately we recognize that in that sense, communion becomes deeply, deeply personal to each one of us. Now, it's interesting, right? If you think about what Jesus said, he didn't say, now I want you guys to, to take this, do this ceremony and remember my death. I want you to do this and, and remember my sacrifice. I want you to do this and remember what happened 2,000 years ago. Although that's incorporated into it, what does he actually say? He says, I want you to do this and remember me. I want you to remember me. You see, Jesus says that through the Holy Spirit and through communion, he is with us today, now. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, and he is present and, and can help you with every problem that you have and put you on a path of growth and health through the Spirit so that you can experience the fruitfulness of the abundant life that he wants to give. It's personal. Jesus says, come and remember me. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to I be on your commute with you. I want to go to work with you. I, I want to be in your marriage, and I want to be in your family, and I want to be a part of your finances, and I want to bless you in, in all the ways that, that you're preventing me from coming into your life. This is deeply personal. Remember me. And, and, and I, I think to turn that on its head as we close this morning, we can also remember when we come to take communion that I think Jesus also tells us, I remember you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. I know what you're going through, and I know what your experience is, and I am with you. If you come and remember me, know that I remember you. And thus, in this communion feast, the, the Lord's Supper, he is the host at this table, becomes the core experience of our Christian community that reminds us who we follow, why we follow him, and how we are to model our lives after his sacrificial, self-giving death as our pathway to life and to peace. So what do we do in communion? We remember Jesus. We examine ourselves. We discern the body of Christ and we proclaim the Lord's death for each one of us until he comes again. Do this, Jesus said, in remembering me. Let's pray. God, as we come to this holy table again this morning, we are in awe of your goodness and your beauty. Thank you for the reminder that that we don't have to have it all together and be perfect. In fact, it's in our frailty and our brokenness and our sin that we are invited to come to this holy table acknowledging that the sacrifice of Jesus is the only thing that we need for life and peace with you. So forgive us this morning, God, for the ways that we forget you in our lives, for the ways that we have forgotten the deeper meaning and the value of this call to participate in this feast of love. Meet us here in this place through your spirit and the presence of Christ who calls us to remember him this morning. We ask this in his name.